This is the fourth plenary uh, talk of Media and Transition 6. Uh, the topic of this panel is the future of publishing. My name is Jeffrey Long. I'm a recent graduate of the Comparative Media Studies program. Um, I wrote my master's thesis on the concept of transmedia storytelling. And although in CMS we tend to look frequently at um, you know, new and exciting media like you know, video games and location-based entertainment and mobisodes and all kinds of that fun stuff, um, really the, the, the printed word and the, the bound volume is you know, still absolutely very near and dear to my heart, which is why I thought it was important that we talk a little bit about uh, the state of publishing right now, which is very, very much in a, uh, a state of transition right now. So the panelists that will be speaking uh, here this evening, um, starting on the far side, is Gavin Grant. Uh, Gavin is the publisher of Small Beer Press, an independent press based in Massachusetts, whose books have been awarded the Philip K. Dick, Shirley Jackson, Hugo, and Locus Awards, as well as selected as Best of the Year by Time Magazine, Salon, Booklist, Village Voice, and the San Francisco Chronicle, among others. Since 1996, he has, with Kelly Link, edited and published Lady Churchill's Rosebud Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. Sorry, Gavin. Um, a twice yearly small press zine. About half of Small Beer's list is available as ebooks, and five titles have been released online under the Creative Commons license. Originally from Scotland, Grant moved to the United States in 1991 and has worked in bookshops in Los Angeles and Boston and for BookSense.com. He has written for the Los Angeles Times, created Christian Science Monitor. Hartford Courant, Time Out New York, and others. He lives with his family in an old farmhouse in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, the next one in is Jennifer Jackson, uh, who has been a literary agent since 1993, working with the Donald Moss Literary Agency, which was founded in 1980. The agency represents more than 150 professional novelists in a variety of genres. Her current roster includes, among others, New York Times best-selling fantasy writer Jim Butcher, USA Today bestseller Ann Bishop, and Hugo nominee Jay Lake. She works closely with her clients to develop career strategies. Jennifer is a frequent speaker at writer workshops and conferences and a dedicated advocate for authors. Uh, Bob Miller. In April 2008, Bob Miller joined HarperCollins Publishers as president of Harper Studio. This new division intends to address some of the more vexing issues facing the book industry today, including author advances, returns, and online readership. The new unit will publish books in multiple physical and digital formats, combining best practices of trade publishing while leveraging internet-based strategies for sales, marketing, and distribution purposes. Prior to joining HarperCollins, Mr. Miller was president and founder of Hyperion, which specializes in fiction and nonfiction for adults. In the 17 years since its founding, Hyperion has published more than 1,500 books, more than 200 of which have been national bestsellers. These include Mitch Albom's The Five People You Meet in Heaven, David Halberstam's The Teammates, and Randy Posh's The Last Lecture. Uh, before joining Disney, Mr. Miller had been a vice president at Dell Publishing and editorial director of Delacorte Press. Mr. Miller began his career as an editorial assistant at St. Martin's Press in 1978. As an editor there, he was responsible for Mary Wilson's best-selling Dream Girl, My Life as a Supreme. He subsequently moved on to a position as senior editor at Warner Books, where he acquired such books as Robert D. Ballard's uh, Discovery of the Titanic and the Andy Warhol Diaries. Mr. Miller is chairman of New York City, Outward Bound, and lives with his wife and three children in uh, New Jersey. And immediately to my right is Bob Stein. After nearly 13 years of tool building and experimenting, Bob Stein is starting a new publishing company. Previously, Bob was the founder of the Voyager Company, where for 13 years he led the development of over 300 titles in the Criterion Collection, a series of definitive films on video disc, and more than 75 CD-ROM titles, including the CD companion to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Who Built America, and Laurie Anderson's puppet model. Motel. Motel. Oh, thank you. Um, for the past five years, Bob has been the director of the Institute for the Future of the Book, a small think-and-do tank investigating the evolution of intellectual discourse as it shifts from printed pages to network screens. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming our panel.
So we're going to start uh, this evening's conversation uh, with Gavin. Um, Small Beer Press is a small but incredibly vibrant press, responsible for not only uh, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, uh, but also, as your bio notes, for publishing a number of award-winning titles. Getting right to the nature of this talk, how has the rise of new publishing and promotion technologies affected how you acquire, produce, and publicize your titles? Ebooks aside, because we'll come back to that in a little bit, uh, how have these new experiments with technologies and practices, such as licensing your books under the Creative Commons license, made conducting business easier, and how have they made it harder? Right. Um, well, obviously, I'm in publishing, so I'm, uh, I like challenges, because publishing, I guess the, the topic here is the future of publishing, and I, th I think we could just wrap it up if I say it's mixed. You know, it's somewhat good, somewhat bad. You Stretch know. it out a little bit, please. Mm, somewhat mixed. Um, we, I don't think the, I don't think the social media, I don't think any of that has changed the way we've acquired books. We are such a small kind of boutique press that most of our books are actually acquired from trusted recommenders, which is very kind of um, pre-web but web 2.0 at the same time. Someone who knows someone who knows someone who has a book that they cannot sell will come to us and say, "I would like you to publish this book." Um, six months later, when we actually read it, we will discover this is true, um, that we should publish it. So publishing, that part hasn't changed. Producing it, that part hasn't changed either, because we came in very late to, we came into publishing books in 2001, and at that point, um, the barriers to entry had already dropped. Um, somebody sitting in an apartment in Brooklyn with a pretty basic iMac could actually you know, make a decent book, send a, send a PDF off to Michigan, and get 2,000 books sent to a warehouse. Um, that's what we did. Um, that, the numbers have gone up. We've moved to Massachusetts, but not much has changed um, in their production. Uh, the printers are all slightly more able to deal with um, what we're doing, but the, you know, we are still in the process, and we're still in the business of producing paper objects um, for the most part, I'll leave the kind of ebook part till later. Then um, publicizing. Pu this this part is kind of interesting because I um, I am not the person who twitters. I am not the person who f is on Facebook up until about a month ago. But we one of our assistant editors started a Facebook page. And I like that. I like that um, there's something going on that I don't really know what it is. And there's conversations, and there's there are kind of the most passionate readers are finding that site there in a way that you know, if you find the website, the website is more of a static display. It's got a couple of hundred pages. It's you know, you can sit and waste your life on it and see you know, twelve years of from bad web design to slightly better to, you know, at some point we will move up to 2004, 2005. We do have a blog. We have lots of social media type things. And to a certain extent, those have worked. But I think that the, the breaking point for that is maybe, maybe next year, maybe the year after, maybe some point in the future. The, the part of the future of publishing and social media and so on that I'm kind of interested in is the obsession people have with um, hyper-local, which I think means local. So finding local people and 
selling, selling things to them, even if that locality is in a different physical space, which, you know, which is what the web does best. There are, you know, say 200 people here, but if we had done this online, if, you know, if the next uh, version of Skype has a video capabilities for conferencing, we'd probably have thousands of people watching this and taking part in it. And I'm not quite sure how I would follow the conversation because I would be following the tweets and I would be following the speakers and I would be listening to something else at the same time. That this, this local aspect of things, finding, finding the reader, making a product here and finding a reader there, that I think is the, it's always been the challenge. It's, the distribution is always the, the kind of mm, stopgap, the circuit breaker for books. You know, we can make, we can publish, you know, we did a book five or six years ago, a translation of an Argentinian novel by Ursula Le Guin. Uh, we sold, you know, three, four thousand copies of it, and I thought, well, we did okay. We, you know, Ursula Le Guin translated it. We should have sold many copies of it. But I've talked to other people, and they said, well, you sell three thousand copies of a translation, you give yourself a pat in the back, and you go on. But I feel that that is the kind of book that has to go out and find readerships. It's it's not much good if I do broadcast advertising on a book like that. Um, and this is the part where. Hopefully, the future of publishing will come down to narrow casting in a way that if you read book A, book B, and book C, something will be able to tell you, oh, you would like book J. You would really, really like book J. But this doesn't happen yet. Um, I've joined Goodreads. I've joined Library Thing. Um, I don't buy anything off Amazon. Um, so I, I don't have the experience with their algorithm, in part because I think they're, in, they're kind of the evil heart of publishing. And if you buy off Amazon, you're kind of killing local bookstores. And I have a real uh, problem with that, because if you don't employ smart people in your town to sell you books, then when you go wandering around your town and wonder why there is no heart to it, um, it will be your fault. Oh, sorry. Um, Amazon, I remember a couple of years ago when I worked at BookSense, the American Booksellers Association, they, their first thing on the web, they, they have a new thing called IndieBound, and it, it's a step up. It's not great, but it is better. You can put, you can add bookstores, you can add wish lists, you can do a lot of things to it. it is they have stepped back and realized they can use other tools to go on the web, but, you know, narrow casting to get back to that, it's not happening there. And I think the Amazon model at the moment is so messed up because their algorithm is you buy book A, you buy book C. Have you noticed there's a best-selling book? No, you don't care about the best-selling book. You know, what you would like is book J. You really, really wanted book J, but they're never gonna tell you about it because they're, they know that if they throw bestsellers at you, you will probably just buy theirs as, instead. So what I'm hoping that the future of publishing will bring is somebody, IndieBound, or you know, my friend who is working on a Facebook application in his basement, that will take these books, will take your information stream, um, whether they do it you know, from an API, from your Google 
history or your Amazon history or whatever and get you book A, B, and then J. That is, that is what I'm looking forward to. How about the rest of you? What experience, uh, experiments have you been conducting lately and how have they affected your lives? Gosh, Gavin covered it pretty well. Um, I did think about some things that my authors are doing to um, promote their books. A lot of uh, direct marketing that wasn't really available to them before uh, they could have an active web presence. Um, we're seeing a lot of author-produced um, book trailers that they put on YouTube, and of course there was no YouTube. And uh, they're all varying quality, but uh, they are allowing the authors to uh, bring the information directly to uh, their readers. And so that's very uh, exciting in terms of being able to have that kind of leverage from an individual point. Um, one of the interesting projects I'm working on right now is something called Shadow Unit. And uh, it's uh, two of my clients and three other authors who are involved in an online media project. It's a website. Uh, where they're writing episodes for a TV show that never existed. Uh, and so they have quite a following. There's a forum. There's, it's all very Web 2.0. And uh, they have uh, episodes and seasons and outtakes and for a DVD set that just isn't there. And so uh, there's even uh, interest from places like audible.com now in uh, taking that and making it available in audio. So it's really expanding, and it just started as this sort of little fan project. And so I think what's exciting to me is seeing people being able to be active and individual and take that to the next level and really connect. Uh, well, Harper Studio in an, is an experiment, really. Um, I left Hyperion a year ago uh, out of some frustration with the number of elements of the trade publishing model. Uh, that I was an active participant in. Um, the advanced levels had gotten out of connection to what we were selling on a, most days. And uh, returns are up to 40% average in our business. And um, marketing costs co-op that we, you know, money we give bookstores to place books in certain places of the store, chain stores that is. Um, marketing costs are out of astronomical. Um, and obviously there are format issues to play with. So I wanted to start something from scratch with very few people doing very few books that could kind of be the guinea pig for a trade imprint uh, that would behave a little differently. Um, a specific experiment, uh, we, we published our first book this past Tuesday, uh, which is a book, um, it's a collection of 24 previously unpublished pieces by Mark Twain. So it's interesting to go into the future by going into the past, about 100 years. Um, and it's called Who is Mark Twain? And for that book, we've done a number of things that we're trying to apply uh, to see what we can make happen here. Um, one of those things I'm interested in is the ability to sell uh, in, a, in bundles, physical and digital formats. Um, this turned out to be a lot harder than I would have guessed. Um, you cannot combine physical and digital shopping cart on Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com or Borders.com or uh, pretty much anywhere I've found, um, except we did get it uh, up and running for, on our website for this past Tuesday. Um, and it's very rudimentary. Uh, I have a million things I want to change about it already. But what we are doing, um, with the help of Baker and Taylor on the physical side and a company called Simtio, 
SYM as in Mary TIO, which is also part of News Corps, um, it, for the digital delivery, is that we do at least, we have a shared shopping cart. So what that means is you can buy directly from us because it, there's no one else who's doing this yet. Um, you can buy the physical book for $19.99. We give 20% off and free shipping for direct selling. Um, if you buy the physical of that book, you get the ebook for free. If you buy the ebook alone, it's $9.99. If you buy the audiobook, which John Lithgow recorded and he did a beautiful job, uh, it's $14.99. If you buy the hardcover and the audio and the ebook together, it's $24.99, 20% off, free shipping, and you get all three. So I was, I'm, I'm very interested in experimenting, whatever the pricing is. The idea that um, a consumer shouldn't have to buy a book a, for each time anew. If you, you should, if you bought the physical book, you should get credit on your purchase of the, the, the e-book or the audio, of the audio download. So that's an experiment that I've just tried. I mean, we'll see how it works. I mean, why would, some, why would someone come for 100-year-old material just to our website? I mean, that's the remaining question. I'm, I'm very anxious to see this available on websites that have a lot more traffic than ours, um, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, Borders. And uh, this company, Simtio, is in the Christian bookseller mar market selling digital formats on these cards. Um, and Simtio is now talking to all the mainstream bookstores, uh, the independent books booksellers and Barnes Noble and everyone in the trade community about um, applying this in the trade world too. And so that would allow regular bookstores um, to participate in digital, selling digital formats. What do you get when you buy that? What you get uh, is you get an activated code when you go up to the cash register. This is just a thing that the code goes on. It's like buying a, uh, you know, a gift card. Um, and in the CBA stores, the Christian bookseller stores right now, there's Simtio sections in 300 stores where you can either buy the audio download or the ebook, and you get it activated. You go back home to your computer, you type in the code, and there's your download. Um, that way the retailer gets to participate in the digital format. I actually don't really want to walk to a different part of the store and buy a little card. I'm interested in having this, as we do on Twain, uh, on the book. My hope for how this would work is that when you go to a bookstore, you can decide when you buy the book to buy the physical only, or physical plus ebook for a little more, physical plus ebook plus audio for a little more. Um, because once I'm paid for the book, I'm happy to sell the digital formats for very little in addition to that. So that's, that's the experiment that we've just started as of Tuesday. I'll wait till I more light. Okay, that's fine. Um, so our next question is uh, for Jennifer. Um, you maintain two fairly vibrant weblogs, one at jenniferjackson.org that showcases new releases from your clients, and another on LiveJournal, which grants a large amount of insight into your life and processes as an agent. One of your practices is to share the weekly statistics regarding the number of queries you receive, the number of partial or full manuscripts you request, and the genre of those requested manuscripts. Those numbers are frequently brutal, but at the same time, this allows would-be clients an honest glimpse into what the publishing business is really like. Uh, you're not alone in this practice. Uh, there are other agents who blog, including Nathan Bradford, Janet Reed, and Colleen Lindsay, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. So we recently saw the Twitter space explode with a query fail, uh, which was a, an event where um, a bunch of literary uh, bloggers, and I guess tweeters, um, went online and shared the most horrendous query letters that they'd ever received, um, which of course was really funny, and I suspect kind of cathartic. Um, but the problem with that is that there was an, almost an immediate backlash called uh, agent fail, 
where the authors then rose up and said, you're being mean to us, and we're going to tell all these horrible, nasty stories about what it's like dealing with bad agents. Yes. <laughs> Is all this transparency a good thing? Um, well, I think like with most things, it's probably some of each. Um, I was you know, sort of thinking about the before and after uh, you know, experience for me. I've been an agent for 15 years. So I was an agent before there was blogging and Twitters and uh, in fact, most of my colleagues didn't even have websites uh, when, when we first started out. And so the before experience was that you got a very small number of queries because it was, it was uh, harder to find the information about different agents. You had to go to the library or buy a, a large guidebook that cost $600 or um, things like that. And so you got this small number of queries from people who knew very little about you other than your address. Uh, and, and maybe a couple of clients that you listed in a guidebook. Uh, and they knew nothing about you as a person, uh, about your likes or dislikes or your, uh, your character, your uh, do you have a sense of humor, anything like that. Um, and so it was, it was a very isolating process, uh, and it made it very easy for uh, agents and authors to have a, a great divide, as it were. Uh, the, uh, the only authors you met face-to-face -face were at conferences, uh, and that represented a very small percentage of the authors. So your exposure to them as people was only to those who could afford to spend the kind of money required to go to something, you know, airfare, hotel, et cetera. You're limiting yourself there. Uh, and, and so there was just this very small slice going on. So now fast forward to today when we have blogs and we tweet and we do query fail and agent fail. And uh, then we had, a, after that, uh, agent pass and author pass. That was, that was the next week. And, uh, <laughs> and all of this adds up to a conversation, a meta-conversation uh, that is occurring. Uh, and there's a lot of editor participants, too. Uh, editors have uh, all sorts of uh, you know, social uh, sites uh, on Facebook, on MySpace, uh, everywhere. It's just proliferated to a great extent. So it allows for you to have a direct connection. Uh, the, you mentioned my... Uh, Query statistics, it's called Letters from the Query Wars. And I post it every Friday, almost always, except for like Christmas. And uh, it allows for me to go ahead and talk about the things that work or don't work or ask questions, um, you know, and have polls. Uh, this, this last Friday, the one I just posted, uh, I listed uh, the types of things that I had recently requested submissions for and asked the authors to tell me which one I should read first and why, why they chose that one over the other choices. Uh, just to, it gives them an insight into um, how you're leveraging your time, your triage, and then it can go the other direction uh, so that you can go and read uh, you know, how they felt after they got your rejection. You know, and sometimes that goes very badly as in Asian fail, um, which had over 250 comments on the blog entry. I did not read them all. Um, I got a little depressed <laughs> because a lot of them were talking about the things that agents do that make it difficult for writers to connect. Um, and uh, unfortunately, they were preaching largely to the choir because blogging agents are trying to connect. So, But it also was very instructive because although it had a lot of dark side to it in terms of the frustration that the authors feel you know, dealing with traditional publishing, uh, it also uh, had a lot of constructive information, feedback about places where our system could be better. 
and where we could connect more. And so to me, that was just you know, worth all of the Sturm and Drang. Um, I do think that you have to have a certain level of caution in terms of the public face that you put forward. Uh, there are certainly authors who uh, say things on their blogs that perhaps should have been reconsidered. Um, or it gives also uh, the readers of these authors an opportunity to come and explain to them how the author has failed them, uh, how perhaps they have not delivered a book uh, that the readers have been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for, and the author's three years late. Well, now they can tell the author how they feel, and the author has to come back and deal with that. Um, and so, you know, it, but it's a conversation that I think is expanding the connection. It's, it's, letting, um, it's letting people understand each other better, and it's reducing the idea of uh, just the volume that, that all the query letters and all the submissions and are just an accumulation of paper. They, they become something more because now I can go and read this person's blog entry about their experience in submitting and I can understand where they're coming from. So overall I would say it's a good thing, um, even if there's probably a few pitfalls here and there that people need to be aware of. How about the rest of you? Most of you keep a blog uh, or some kind of public presence uh, for your projects. Um, we started a blog for Harper Studio called The 26th Story before we, it's now on our website, now that we have the website up, theharperstudio.com. And um, you know, there are only five of us, so keeping that going each day is uh, an interesting side job on top of the job of starting a new publishing division. So, um, but it's been really good. It's been good for us to have, we have um, you know, maybe a thousand people, sometimes more each day, and a lot of them are very vocal, and uh, you have to develop a thicker skin, certainly, because um, some of them just like to have strong opinions and, and say that you're an idiot. Um, and that's, you know, so what, you can't have transparency without having full transparency, and so a lot of people have lots of things to say. The, um, it, but we've gotten great feedback, um, and mostly good. Uh, sometimes we've gone out and said, you know, we'll give a $25 to anybody who can think of a great title for X book, and we've gotten hundreds of great title ideas. So, you know, there are people who want to participate in the publishing process, and opening that up has been, has been actually good for us in terms of getting our uh, name out there, and also uh, we've used the crowd to help make decisions. Kevin? Um, it's funny because we have, we have a blog which started off as a, a while ago it was just a site update thing but that got boring for me to do so it became something more than that and it, it, when we started it you know seven or eight years ago or something it was called Not A Journal and it is still called Not A Journal so at some point we'll need to find a better name that's you know not a negative. Um, and we don't actually go for full transparency, which is funny. We, um, we have a generic handle, um, a generic name, and people will sometimes post under their own names and sometimes just post under the press's name because there's a bunch of us who are working there who don't really want to be, you know, we're in it to put out good work. That good work is not necessarily us. You know, our, our work is not the focus of it. Our work is putting a book into your hands that you will enjoy it. You know, hopefully you'll enjoy the design, you'll, it, you will find it, that kind of thing, but you will not think, good Lord, that was a well-edited book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as for crowdsourcing, um, we, just, we just did that with a project uh, with the help of uh, Jeffrey at the end there. Um, we're publishing a book for an arts group called the Interstitial Arts Foundation, and there, 
their whole raison d'etre is art that crosses lines, art, art that is in the cracks, art that is, you know, a tomato and a car, whatever, you know, it's everything. So we thought, well, it'd be interesting. Last, we did an anthology for them two years ago, and we found an we found a, a photograph of a shadow box, which included a, if you looked very closely, there's a tiny mirror in the middle of it, and you could see the photographer. It was a very interesting, weird picture, and it seemed to fit this interstitial aesthetic. This time we thought, well, we'll throw it out there um, and see if we can f um, get something suggested to us. And Jeffrey uh, set up a Flickr group that people could submit their art to, so it was fantastic. We got four or five hundred submissions, and the editors and I, the editors and I and Jeffrey just went through, and the cover artist from the last time, we just went through like a Flickr slideshow, and we, you know, like Bob said, we could have, uh, in, that, in that Flickr group, there's about 12 pictures that I would happily use on the cover of books, so we are very much going to go to Flickr for um, future covers. Uh, Bob, did you have anything to add to that last one? No. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> The th moving down the table, the third question is, again, for you. Um, so we talked a little bit about who is Mark Twain, uh, the new book that you've got, and you've talked a little bit about uh, this bundling project that you've got. Um, but that seems to me to, to strike at one of the main core problems that's facing the adoption of e-books as an emerging media form, which is that when the iPod first showed up, it was entirely, entirely too easy for all of us to go out and say, very well, I have this. Uh, electronic format for my music. I'm going to go home and take all of my existing CDs and rip them to MP3s and pour them into this small device, and it was wonderful. Um, E-books, however, seem to require that we just go out and buy all of our libraries all over again, um, which seems like a fairly steep price to pay. Um, what's your read, if you'll pardon the pun, on the state of the e-book? Is it really the next great thing going for publishing? Um, what are the challenges standing in its way? And how are you, in person, planning on tackling those? Uh, well, the e-book e is an extraordinary invention. Um, what's wonderful about it, of course, is the convenience for readers. Although, I haven't heard of many people who wanted to rip their entire li libraries and put it in their, their readers or on their phones or other devices. But, Academics go back to our books uh, repeatedly. <laughs> um, but I like that idea. Um, the, certainly, there's a convenience for most readers in having, theoretically, any book available anytime uh, on the Kindle, wirelessly, on Sony, not, wirel you know, not wirelessly, but depending on the device, there's incredible access immediately to a book, no matter what its quirks of its distribu physical distribution. Um, also, we've, we're saving ourselves, from a publisher's point of view, the physical cost of production. Um, the cost of returns at 40%, that's very high cost. Uh, environmentally, we're not shipping books back and forth across the country, first to sell them, then to get them back, then to sell them to a remainder house, then to get them back, then to pulp them. I mean, books do a lot of driving. Um, so, uh, you know, there's an inevitable increase we're going to see ahead in, in e-books. Now that the Kindle app is on the iPhone, I think we're going to see a, a geometric, you know, growth. Um, that said, there, it was only 0.5% of the AAP numbers last year. 99.5 was physical, 0.5% ebook. Now, ebooks grew by 68% last year. So, as a graph, that <laughs> tiny uh, amount is, is growing very quickly. And we can project out that that graph will get steeper. And um, 
and I think that we, you know, whatever your guess is of the percentage, um, you know, in Japan, a very high percentage now of what of reading is done on phones. So um, we can imagine that certainly whether you think it's 10% in five years or 50% in 10 years, whatever it is, that it, we're going to have a lot of e-books uh, there. The, the dark side, which may or may not be a dark side, but it's, a, it's something we have to grapple with, is um, I think inevitably a downward pressure on pricing. And um, that's something for all of us who want to make a living out of it, authors and publishers alike, uh, are going to need to grapple with. Um, the grappling for me comes in the forms of lower overhead. Harper Studios is only five people, although we are attached to HarperCollins, so that's cheating a little bit because we have a lot of infrastructure to use there. Um, we are trying to uh, reduce unearned advances by limiting advances and offering profit shares instead. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to shrink in, and I think the shrinking is, is only just begun in our business because no matter what your opinion is of ebook pricing, and speaking of blogs, we, I mentioned something about ebook pricing on our blog once, and I think the, the argument is still going on, although I haven't looked at it a couple of weeks. Um, but the, uh, inevitably, whatever your opinion is, the, you know, consumers are going to expect a lower price on an ebook. Um, and that, where's that, that's going to squeeze out even beyond the cost savings of physically producing books and shipping them. There's the expectation even beyond those savings of price reduction. And that's going to just take revenue out of the business that we're going to have to take out from other places to make up for it. Anybody else? Ebooks? Sorry, my fascinating. Um, <laughs> and on our books, we, we produce uh, half of them as ebooks. Um, mostly, there are some authors who weirdly don't want to sell ebook rights because they're waiting for, and I'm not sure what, you know, the apocalypse. I don't know. <laughs> Amazon to come in and say, we would like your rights and we will give you, you know, a very large share and you will be locked into Amazon and everybody will be happy, right? Not really, no. I don't want to have a $400 Amazon linked device. Um, I'd rather have, you know, my books on stanza or fiction. You know, my books available through e-reader and FictionWise and places like that where the 37 million iPhone users can buy them. I don't care about the half million Kindle users. I really, really don't. Um, partially <laughs> because the Kindle seems to be a 1970s technology that has gotten away to being released now. I, um, <laughs> it's like Texas Instruments that designed a book reader in the 1970s and put it in a box and then Amazon found it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No um, argument. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, I don't actually agree that the, I don't agree that um, all the production costs disappear for ebooks. And part of our problem as a small house with ebooks is the, formats because ebook readers are um, religious about their formats and it's fine when we put out Creative Commons books um, and people then send us, uh, you know, this one will work on your Palm 3, this one will work on your Trio, this one, you know, we will post those on our website and you can go and see, you know, a couple of hundred people are downloading that, thousands of people are downloading that. The, I think the, the highest downloads Oh, for every one of our books are always PDFs, which is hilarious because everybody says, oh, PDFs are ugly, PDFs are clunky. And, you know, you put up a low-res PDF and 20,000 people will download that and 200 people will download the, the um, EPUB or whatever. But um, try, 
you know, making a PDF, we do that already. Making a low-res PDF, easy. Making all those other ones, that's a hassle. And if you look at the EPUB, um, the way in which you're supposed to make an EPUB book, uh, that's, you know, that's a good amount of work. So that has to be leveraged into eBooks. We can't just go and say, okay, eBooks are $2.99. Um, if we get 50% of that $2.99, we're working on a buck 50, so the author's getting, hmm. 15 cents? Yeah, 15 cents. Woohoo! I, yeah. I think I get like a penny of that. No, I don't disagree. I mean, the, I'm saying it's really production is reduced compared to a physical book. Yes. Right. Um, and the overhead that lay, all the investment you make leading up to the decision of whether to print on paper or mm -hmm. format into all the formats we need to offer an ebook in or print on pasta, whatever it is, that's the last stage. So the, the, all the other costs are still there. Yeah. Um, and there are costs of delivering those digital formats in time and money, as you said. I mean, even setting up a shopping cart, uh, we pay Simtio on our site a fee each time somebody comes for even a free ebook. So uh, it, we, there's cost. We use PayPal and we've we've set up a couple of books on our site where you know you you can order the book or you can order the ebook for our books are usually sixteen dollar trade paperbacks and you can get the ebook for like three dollars. And the take up on that is very, very small thus far, you know. Yeah, but but it, it's fun to put that experiment out there. I think one of the things that you guys were talking about with the formatting is the thing that's most interesting to me as an agent because um, I actually recently uh, got a Sony e-reader uh, for a trip to uh, the London Book Fair so I could put a large number of manuscripts on this tiny little device. But of course it was $350. And I realized that uh, your average reader might not go out and plunk down that amount of cash uh, for something that is basically a single device that can only deliver a single format. Um, the, one of the reasons I didn't pick the Kindle is because of their DRM. And I think that's where we get into sort of a, a sticking point with um, e-rights in terms of making them productive uh, for both the consumers and the publishers. Um, way, way back when we first started, you, said, you mentioned the iPod, Jeff. Um, when they first started, they had DRMs for, uh, Apple had DRM for a lot of the music too, and it wasn't, really didn't take off until the DRM-free things became available because people were having so much hassle. Uh, and now, of course, everyone's on iTunes every five minutes downloading this or that song for a buck a song. And, you know, so the argument has been made that it sort of injures the sale of whole albums or CDs, but at the same time, it generates, I think, a lot more interactive buying. And so I think one of the problems that we're running into with ebooks is going to be very similar. We're just X years behind the music industry, which happens pretty frequently, actually. Well, we are, we're offering our books at Harper Studio DRM-free, but the rest of HarperCollins is not. Exactly. So, so we're, we're, we're saying, well, we're the experimental division. Let which us is, do Which that. is great. But, and um, I, I'm also curious about the bundling thing, because one of the things, I had a poll on my blog when I was trying to decide which e-reader to buy, and I asked them to pick from among four different e-readers, um, the Kindle 2, the old Sony reader, uh, the new Sony reader, um, which has sort of a different formatting on it, uh, the Iliad, which costs twice as much as either of those, uh, and then there was a none of the above. The Rocket ebook, you didn't go with that? I the didn't pick, Gemstar. oh, the Rocket, yeah. oh gosh, I haven't seen one of those in years. Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing to me was how many people said they won't buy ebooks because they cost too much. Um, you know, and looking. Well, there's ebook readers and there's ebooks. So we no, don't they were both. Those. They were both. Both. A lot of them were talking about the cost of buying the reader. But one of the advantages, he's saying, well, why does everybody download these low-res PDFs? Well, because they're free, and you can put them anywhere. I mean, I have any, you know, PDFs on my e-reader right now that were from various people who have sent me things that are mm -hmm. from publishers, and I don't, you know, they're easy for me to to move. So 
And I don't know how many people are going to, as Jeff said, scan their entire libraries because that seems like it would take a really long time. I think uh, that, um, I, I mean, pu publishers seem to think that, um, that all the problems that have confronted the music industry and the video industry are not going to um, show their ugly face around the, uh, the publishing industry. I don't know why they think that. Um, <laughs> and I, I think that the, 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 the reality is that the, the, as soon as we, we get a decent device for reading books on, which my guess is will be a larger version of this. Or a smaller version uh, of the uh, Sony, maybe. Well, but the key thing is that it won't, that it won't, it, it, it won't require DRM. Okay, DRM is just not going to work. And once, once you have devices that are not DRM-based, then suddenly there's you know, wholesale piracy uh, where people are trading things around. And I, so I think, that what has to, what I think that what will happen is that the, and I'll talk about this in a minute when I sort of talk, but the, I, I think that there's going to be a necessity of sort of redefining content to include the conversation that it engenders. Because as the, as the value of, 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 of straight content, you know, whether it's music or video or text, goes to zero because of the ubiquity and pir of, 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 of piracy and availability, what people likely will pay for is the ability to be part of a community. And so I sort of want to redefine the page to include the conversation that it engenders. And that actually might have a chance of people paying for. So what you're doing is changing what the object is that we're talking about. It's not a book anymore. It's a conversation. It's a, it's a participation. I'm redefining. I'm redefining the, the, the content to include the conversation okay. that normally has taken place at the water cooler. You know, right. Where, wherever. So, so it takes place. But now it takes place on the page. Well, it's interesting when you, you mentioned the, the music business because obviously they have seen that pressure, downward pressure on pricing and the availability and piracy. Um, one other thing that's where the bundling idea. Uh, that was came from from for me because a lot of bands are now offering these incredible arrays of uh, bundles you can buy because uh, so they're looking for things additional things to sell. You're you're selling that additional conversation, but I I'm, you've probably but, seen uh, the Nine Inch Nails drummers offer or right. some of the other recent ones where you know it's it's X amount for the download, X plus Y for download plus CD, X plus Y plus C for download CD and vinyl, X plus Y plus Z plus A for uh, you know all those things. Plus, I'll come wash your car. I mean, it's like right, but, yeah, but, until it's like five hundred dollars, twenty thousand dollars. I mean, they're, they're but, but I think though what what, what 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 musicians have basically learned though is that if they want to make money, they got to show up. I mean, they, they're getting so paid. It's, it's about to show performance. Up. And I think, in fact, that um, authors are increasingly going to find that they in, that they are going to get paid for showing up in the pages of their book with their readers and selling their T-shirts. And selling their T-shirts. I also think it's interesting that you both brought up piracy because I've been reading a lot of statistics about that, and I know that it's one of the first concerns that my authors immediately, the minute that I say something about DRM, the first thing they're like, well, then everyone will steal my book. But I think an author like, say, Cory Doctorow has proven that that may not entirely be the case because he released his book under the Creative Commons license, and also uh, Gavin's done that with several books. And the trends actually seem to indicate that it generates more interest and more sales it's over the course of time because it's basically advertising. Also, people don't want most. Also, I mean, har, 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 well, that's true. And the other thing with piracy is that it's actually really hard. Yeah, but the but the problem is, and this is why, is that there's nothing to pirate things onto yet. Well, I, I mean, guess that, that, that's even, a bigger problem. But even with music it, piracy, 
I'm, what I'm reading in terms of statistics is that the percentage of sales lost is probably very small percent of the overall sales. In, in, in part, because, in part in the music, huge. I think the piracy really? problem is hidden by the format problem because the music business was going on this lovely cycle of a new format every couple of years where people did actually buy their library again and now they've run out. You know, you, you don't buy an MP3 every 10 years. You did buy an 8-track, a cassette, a record, a CD, an MP3, and then you stop. So, you know, that Beatles album that kept selling and selling and selling has now stopped, and that, I think, disguises a lot of the fall in music sales. And I don't think that the music argument really works for books. I know that, you know, if I have a 500-gigabyte drive and my friend has a 500-gigabyte drive and we both have 200 gigs of music, we can sit there and swap stuff. I personally... I, I will sit there and I will go, I'll take one or two CDs maybe, but I'm, I'm in the business of trying to sell stuff for people, so I'll, I'll not bother, but you, know, you do as you feel is right. And if I have 200 gigabytes of um, PDFs and my friend over here, she has two, maybe we could do that. But I, I don't know that that's gonna happen because I was driving here and I was listening to a Gillian Welsh song that I bought off her website three or four years ago, this cover of a Radiohead song, and it is gorgeous and I love it. I don't know how many times I've listened to that. I but I can tell you the number of times that I've read most books, you know, and it's not uncountable. It is not thousands. So that that doesn't work. You know, the the 3 minute 5 minute song versus the 2 to 10 to 20 hours of a book that these don't these metrics don't fit. Which isn't actually Sorry, contributing, I feel, to the conversation. It's just. Do you want to move on? Yeah. Well, the, our fourth and final provocation is for you. Uh, your work truly is dedicated to comparative media studies, uh, including film with the Criterion Collection, interactivity with Atari and Voyager, and reading and writing with the Institute for the Future of the Book. Uh, the first few paragraphs of the Institute's mission includes the following. For the past 500 years, humans have used print the book and its various page-based cousins to move ideas across time and space. Radio, cinema, and television emerged in the last century, and now, with the advent of computers, we are combining media to forge new forms of expression. For now, we use the word book broadly, even metaphorically, to talk about what has come before and what might come next. So your question boils down to two words. What's next? OK. <laughs> um, I, I actually prepared a little Thing because I noticed on uh, at the opening session that we were getting up here, and I also it, it's hard to talk about what I do without showing stuff. So I've got to figure out how to. Good, okay. Um, by the way, I, I do think that um, just one of the things, uh, riff off of what's one of the things you said that what's next is actually in terms of. Uh, is going to be an entirely new complex medium involving uh, sound, text, pictures, uh, movies, et cetera. Uh, something, you know, we, 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 haven't, we haven't seen it yet. I, I'm going to talk about some very sort of uh, uh, a, a subset. But, but, but the future of publishing is born digital. It's not taking texts that were written and moving them over to a computer screen. Uh, that, that's a good thing to do, and, and, we're, and, we, and we need to do it, but the future of publishing is, an, is, is something that we, we haven't seen yet. Um, anyway, I'm going to try to do this fairly quickly. Uh, Arthur Kessler, you know him because he wrote Darkness at Noon. He also wrote a book called The Sleepwalkers. Uh, the Sleepwalkers is a history of early astronomy. Uh, 
in this book, he writes about uh, the book that nobody read. And the book that nobody read was Copernicus's De Revolutionibus, where he first said that it was the Earth going around the sun and not the other way around. Fast forward a bunch of years, Harvard astronomer Owen Gingrich is reading uh, the book that nobody read, and he makes a mental note about this, and he ends up in the library, the Trinity Library in Dublin, and uh, he have, he's holding in his hands a first edition of the Revolutionibus. And it, on the right-hand side, that's actually what was printed. On the left-hand side is uh, a conversation that is taking place in the margin among more than one reader. Books, this was before printing. Books were scarce. So uh, you know, the, you, you, the, the professor and the student would often you know, uh, write notes in the same, in the same book. Um, I'd like to show this because, in a lot of ways, remix culture and uh, active marginalia is not new. It's, uh, because that's what I'm going to show you in a minute, but it's something that uh, has been around a long time. In fact, I was in a, uh, at the Laurentian Library in Florence last year, and the librarian there uh, dragged out a copy of a book from Oxford from, uh, when was Oxford founded? Maybe it's before Oxford. It's like a 10th century book. But it was a book where there was a huge, huge margin in the book. And there was writing all over it in all these different handwritings. I mean, the book was a place where people were having these active uh, discussions. Um, anyway, uh, this institute that I've been working at for the last several years, we, we've done a bunch of experiments. And probably the most uh, famous one uh, that we did uh, about three years ago with Ken Wark, who's in the audience here. Uh, it's the text of his book, uh, Gamer Theory. Uh, and we convinced Ken to, to publish it with us. And each, Ken writes in paragraphs. He doesn't uh, write in pages. So each one of these cards is actually a paragraph. And the interesting thing that we did was instead of, it was based on blogging software. And instead of having the comments down below, we moved the comments up to the side, next to Ken's text. And within a couple of hours of this being published uh, online, a conversation started to emerge over there. And what was really interesting was to realize that all of a sudden, the author and the reader were occupying the same space. Uh, Ken actually was a, very, was a very active participant in the discussion that went on here. And he, he actually, to, to my, my way of thinking, he was actually functioning as, a, as the moderator, as the, as, the, as the teacher in a seminar, where he set the subject. He may have known more than everybody else, but he trusted the readers to work with him to deepen their collective knowledge of the subject matter. Um, a recent uh, example of this, I mean, a recent experiment that we did, more recent, was this one. This is uh, we, Harper Collins very nicely uh, made available to us the text of uh, Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook. And what you see on the left-hand side is, uh, let's see if I can make this small enough to actually fit on here. There we go. Uh, what you see on the left-hand side is one page from The Golden Notebook. And what you see on the right-hand side is a discussion among seven women who are reading this book uh, at the same time. Uh, sort of, and what, what we proved here 
because the, the, the women love the experience. What we proved here was the, 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 the fact that a, it's, we, we now have the technology to have an asynchronous reading group. So that suddenly it's not where you have to be on the third Thursday of every month, uh, you know, the place down the corner or across town. You now can have a reading group with, you know, your five best friends who live, you know, ar around the world. Um, and it, it really, it worked quite beautifully. Um, I'm almost done here. Uh, so the, I, I now talk about a book as a place where readers and sometimes authors congregate. Uh, and I, I, I think I explained some of the reasons why I think this is important and why I think that the, uh, the, the future of, of publishing, uh, w w the large part of it, will be building communities around uh, works. Um, and then I, I'm going to end with this little koan I've been developing, which is uh, that an old school author's commitment is to engage with the subject matter on behalf of future readers. And a new school author makes a commitment to engage with readers in the context of a particular subject. And on that note, go back to the discussion. So how about the rest of you? Uh, how are authors, agents, and publishers evolving to uh, incorporate what's next? How do you see things unfolding? Well, I think it's very much in transition. I mean, he's, he presented a lot of really interesting ideas. I love the interactive nature of this. I'm sitting here going, ooh, I wonder if I, my authors could do something like this. It would be so interesting to see what people would do. And I think that that's what he's presenting here is this idea of, of the people as, and, and what they're producing as, as the uh, object that we're talking about and not just this sort of static book. And I think that certainly I don't think that books are going to go away entirely. Um, I, th I think that they're, they're romantic, they're portable, they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, they feel good. Uh, that at least they do to me anyway. <laughs> but, um, I, but I do see that there is a place for evolution. Um, and uh, I, the project I mentioned earlier, which is the interactive web webisodes almost, um, only just the text of them uh, for, for the TV show that has never been filmed, in some ways sort of similar because the, the fans of this, the forums are, they're participating in, the, the characters have their own blogs and the readers interact with the characters. I myself have exchanged recipes with one of the characters um, who, is, who is a cook much like myself and, and uh, so I have this relationship with an entirely fictional character. Um, you know, and I think that that is something that we're evolving toward that's more like, like he says, a conversation between the authors and the readers. Uh, to make the readers more participatory. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're entering a period where clearly there's going to be a great contraction. Um, I just read a quote from uh, Warren Buffett uh, talking about the recent economic woes, and he said, uh, uh, when the, it's, it's when the tide goes out that you see who's not wearing a bathing suit. And, uh, and we've seen that recently. We've seen a lot of nakedness in the, in the business lately, and, and the tide only took that a 13% drop in hardcover sales to reveal that because the excesses of bathing suit abuse in the form of unearned advances and overdistributed books um, have been that extreme. Uh, so we have a time of great contraction happening, but also a really interesting time of experimentation where all, there's a lot of things we can do without spending a lot of money. Some money, some time, 
but not as much money as the, at least the large trade houses were spending on perhaps poorly uh, previously, um, that that sinking tide has, uh, has revealed. Um, so you're going to see every day a new experiment. I mean, uh, the, the interaction around, the conversation around the text is fascinating. You know, the company Vook that just was in, you know, started doing enhanced e-books. Random House just announced their enhanced e-books for the fall. Um, I mean, it's, it's going to be a continuing daily evolution of experimenting with combining formats, changing formats, using new formats to market the book. I mean, we're doing a lot of giving away or bartering of free material to sell, to, to make a sale. On the Twain, we've given away a chapter in the New Yorker, a chapter in Harper's, a chapter in the Strand, gave away the audio for a week on the New Yorker site, gave away, you know, we're, we're giving away pieces all over the place, and it's causing the book to sell. Yeah, but, but that's sort of the problem to me, is that, is that the book publishing industry is it's, it, deep, deep, deep in its DNA, and I think it's true for Amazon also, is the object. And the world is moving away from objects as the main transmission, uh, as the main vehicle for transmitting ideas. And as, and, you know, and, and the, so the, the, the experiments which have to do with increasing sales of the book are interesting and, and, and they, will, they will prolong, you know, publishing, but they won't invent the future of, uh, of, of, how, hu of how humans uh, work together to increase our knowledge which well, is what publishing used to do. Well, it's not, that's not the only experiment you're going to see. You're going to experience, you know, we'll, we'll sell uh, smaller pieces of books electronically for granular amounts. We'll sell other formats. We'll combine things we give away for free with things we're selling, whether those are physical and digital or, or otherwise. I'm just saying it's a time of great experimentation. Look, I'm, I'm excited to see what that might become. At this moment, that's 0.5%. No, you're, a $16.8.3 billion business. So we're not going to throw away that 99.5% today uh, when we have that $16 billion worth of readers who want it. Want no, it. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I'm just trying to make the point that fundamentally book publishers are in the selling of object books business. And I don't, I don't think that the experiments that, are, that have been done over the last 20 years in the book industry or that are being done now are likely to, to give rise to, to the new forms that over the next several hundred years are going to prove to be as, as important as the book has been. So the, the Doris Lessing book, did the people have to buy the e-book or was it up for free online? It was, it was entirely a free, I mean, it, I mean, it, it, it was, an, it was, an, it was a uh, spectator sport. Was it open yeah. online or was it? It was open online. So okay. you just can read, go read it. I, it is cool, and I really like that, you know, the people we saw there, seven women, you, you don't know who they are, but, you know, as a book buyer, they're probably a 50-year-old woman, because that's who buys most books, in the U.S. at least. Um, Do you know her name? Because I'd love to sell her. So. Yeah, her name is Madge. <laughs> no, they, I mean, they, no, these, were actually seven, these were actually seven women who we curated. They're actually some of the quite well-known authors, some of them. Well, the, I was talking to a woman today, you know, in my kind of random anecdotal research for this, I, I was asking people, do you read books? Do you buy books? Do you? And she's, she's like, yes. Yes, I, I love books. If I'm, in, if I'm waiting anywhere and I don't have a book, I'm just so annoyed. And you think, okay, I know this woman. You know, I, I know her pretty well. <laughs> I said, well, do you read e-books? Do you read online? She's like, I don't have a computer. Like, wow, that's awesome. <laughs> right. You have just reminded me that, yes, you know, we're doing all this stuff, but 
mm, it doesn't actually matter because she doesn't know publishing houses. She doesn't know authors. She doesn't know. She, she is pretty much given books by her friends or she goes into the bookstores and she gets books. And the other part of this is, you know, we are in the business of making objects for now until there is a waterproof, flexible, you know, something slightly bigger than this with e-ink that refreshes faster than any book reader does at the moment. And I can download with my favorite font into this. And it's got to be waterproof and baby-proof as well because, you know, 17 million baby books, board books were sold last year. I can't have my baby read, eating my yeah. e-reader. I would be very <laughs> unhappy uh, for many reasons. Keep, keep it on your $350 e-reader. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. A chewable b-reader is That's being developed. Oh, very good. I was actually just thinking that we should publish books on rice paper because then you would have <laughs> dual use, you, you know? There is a process for printing on pasta. Right. Um, I'm very actually, interested in it for cookbooks, but it's not been perfected yet. But, I would uh, love that. So somebody yeah. on Iron Chef do edible paper for, for uh, one yeah. of their recipes. Yeah. Yeah, so, yes. so you can do that too. I think really one of the things that we're talking around here is a terminology issue. Um, instead of thinking of it as a book, a physical object, thinking of it as a story, which we are presenting in a book or in an audio form or in an interactive form. And, and I think maybe that's a, a paradigm shift that needs to happen in publishing for it to progress to this next level that Bob's talking about uh, in terms of, of just understanding what is it that we're dealing with here. I'm glad we haven't said the word content yet. Also, oh, also some you had authors, to say it. <laughs> some authors don't actually want to be the person in front. They are. They want to produce their content and disappear and have the content have its life of its own. I mean, some authors, you know, Cory Doctorow is there telling yes. you about his book, and that is awesome. That works. But then, you know, what about the author who just, Mr. Pynchon, you know, still apparently writing? You got to. How does the future, the interactive future with the story, work with someone who refuses well, to we just, interact? We just published a book by Mark Twain. Who's, uh, who's dead? But just we have. Uh, <laughs> He's there still is, telling the best someone, jokes. Yeah. There's actually someone twittering as Twain. Um, of course there is. Uh, there should be two people twittering as Twain. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about a about a, a transformation that isn't going to happen in one year, five years, ten years maybe even a hundred years. I mean, the, you know, the, we're, we're, talk, we're, we're, gonna sh we're shifting the, the way, not just in the publishing industry, but we're shifting the way that humans communicate with each other. You know, and those of us who in, in this room, you know, who, who have computers and Twitter and, and, and Facebook and everything else, you know, we're, we're sort of at the, at the front end of it. But you know, in terms of moving humanity as a whole, um, that's gonna take quite a long time. And, you know, developing the new expressive forms that these new technologies afford that doesn't happen quickly. I mean, it took, well, the printing press came in 1454. It wasn't until uh, 1754 that Samuel Richardson manages to pump out the first novel in English with Pamela. So it took 300 years to come up with the, the novel as a form uh, after the printing press was invented. So I mean, I think that, you know, the, you know, I, mean, I sound very critical sometimes of, of publishers, but I don't have their problems. You know, I, I, don't, I don't run a company that's, that has to sell, you know, printed books. And I'm trying to, you know, I, I have the fun of basically trying to figure out, you know, what the new forms are. But I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to imply at all that it's a, that the kinds of stuff that I'm talking about happens tomorrow or that every author out there has to sort of make that shift. You know, a lot of them aren't. We have a very little amount of time here at the end of the presentation for questions. The discussion is being recorded uh, for a podcast, so uh, there are microphones to the uh, sides of the auditorium. If you would please step up.
Uh, I think our first question is over here. Yeah, thanks so much. That was really fantastic. Um, I think at a conference that's all about storage and transmission, it's really interesting to reflect on whether or not anybody 20 years ago would have predicted that it's easier to get your hands on or to be able to watch a digital film or song than read a digital book. And it's really, especially in the context of what's going on right now with the Kindle, it's so Orwellian to talk about enhanced ebooks when it's accessed itself that's being cut off. So I really want to pick up on what Bob's talking about here. I think uh, O'Reilly picked up on this in his Web 2.0 analysis, the transition from an artifact to a service. I think we could look at um, Kevin Kelly's eight generatives to think about, you know, when, look at the things that can't be copied. And I really want to let people know about this project called Book Ripper, BKRPR, that is all about uh, trying to enable individuals to back up digitally their own personal libraries so that we potentially could you know, create a repository of our own experiences, not have to rebuy the book in a new format. And it's just a little make project to build a little scanner and a little you know, package of software that lets you back up your books and work with archives that are not in publishing form anymore. Like maybe a service like Built on Bob's where you give away the books and charge for people to have a book club around them would be a good experiment. It's a little bit ironic that the, the other member of this panel that couldn't be here this evening, uh, his name is Kevin Smokler, and he's working with a new startup out in San Francisco called booktour.com, um, which is kind of like that. It's a service that's uh, an online author tracking system you know, that kind of builds this community around the authors that go around. Well, 360 um, deals for authors sounds a little like yeah. the slavery that the music industry is trying to create, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the actually the only, um, in, the only interesting thing I see about the Kindle is the seeming the intuitively stupid thing where people pay for blogs or New York Times content on the Kindle. But then at the same time, as a publisher, I'm like, my God, they have got people to pay for blogs and you know, newspapers on, on an e-reader. That's fascinating. But I don't want to do it myself. I, you know, I have my own little problems with them. And I think it's a damn shame that um, Kevin's not here because Amazon have given them some seed money. Because anytime there's an interesting book-related thing out there, you know, library thing, ABE books. You know, books aren't going away because used books will be with us forever. Amazon's there with the money. It's like, damn, what do you have to do? Because Book Tour is a good site. We've got mm -hmm. our authors on there. It's very handy, you know. And Amazon's going to own it as well. Damn it. Book Ripper or go look up. BKRPR, it's a GPL project up on um, Launchpad. It doesn't have a couple of little robot hands that turn the pages for you, does it? I actually have a professor at Teachers College who's taken a razor blade to the spine of his books because he's decided to turn his back, I mean, to go all digital, and he's 75, so it can be done. If you want to digitize your collection, like if you're moving and you're going to throw them all away, you actually can digitize your whole collection and not turn back. He wants to do his research that way. Wow. Uh, our second question? Yeah, um, I'm interested in books and maps, uh, and I think this started at a young age with The Hobbit and the Phantom Tollbooth. I just remember going through the pages of the stories and always flipping back to the maps of these uh, fantasy lands, and, and now I actually work with uh, storytelling on mobile devices, specifically uh, maps. These are sort of walking tours, and we've taken a couple of books about architecture and transfer, transformed them into walkable stories. Um, specifically, there's one here on campus at the Stata Center, Frank Gehry's building. But I'm interested in uh, the fiction community. And if you've seen any interest from your authors in doing versions of their stories that might be location-based or some sort of supplement to a book that is, is put on an online map or a mobile map. 
I can't think of one right off the top of my head, uh, although immediately several things leap to mind that I'd like to see in that format. Uh, and certainly people have published atlases um, in the past. I, I know there was an atlas of Pern that came out. Uh, and certainly an online version of that would probably revitalize sales of that series to some degree. So I, I mean, I think that's a, it's, a, it's an interesting idea to explore. People, I mean, if you go to uh, Google Books and look up our books, for instance, there is a map. There is a map aspect of that where it will map all the locations it finds in the book already for you, which I think is kind of cool, but we haven't found anything interesting to do with it. I'm not sure, fiction-wise. One of our authors is Maureen McHugh, who writes with Sean Stewart, another of our authors who writes the ARG, alternate reality gaming yeah. stuff. And but they haven't brought that, they've kind of disappeared into gaming away and gone into new forms of storytelling without the blob, without the object. Um, and Sean is still doing some object stuff. He did a young adult series, which was in books and also online and on the phone and so on. But it's not ever kind of, the, the book itself is not location-based. Thank you. Cool idea, though. I'll first ask my question and then make a comment. My question is, please comment on the following remarks. <laughs> In addition to all the ideas that came from the panel, especially the idea of the book is creating a social network out of the book, uh, if one uses a website to house the digital version of a book, one can then create a social network on that web. It also is a place where the author can update their book which is something that I plan to do with the book that's coming out soon. I won't self-promote, but anyone wants to talk to me during cocktails, I'll tell them about it. Uh, the other thing is that DRM, there's no DRM about lending your book to a friend. There's no DRM about a used book sale. So uh, I think I had another one, but there's enough for you to comment on. Um, a friend of mine actually made the same point about lending your physical book uh, versus uh, the DRM and, and how that affected uh, sales and so forth. I also actually had a client recently tell me how much she left her Kindle because it meant that everyone was going to have to buy a copy of her book and no one could oh. borrow it or uh, we, we had sort of a very heated discussion. Can I, can I borrow your e-reader? I mean, just kind of <laughs> casually borrow yeah, your give $300? It, give, it, give it back to me at WorldCon. It'll yeah, be yeah, yeah, we're fine. a few months. <laughs> um, I think the other thing you said about the interactive website is interesting. Uh, I actually have a client who did a YA series uh, where they, they, it was all for uh, girls, uh, set at a prep school, sort of gossip girls, only not quite uh, that um, backstabbing. And <laughs> um, but on the site they set up, you could, like Facebook, you could get your personalities and all your favorite CDs, your favorite clothes, all that kind of stuff, and interact. Uh, and, and the idea was much of what you're talking about in terms of having a, a social site built around the series. Uh, the updating seems to me like it would be more common for nonfiction than fiction. Um, because I'm thinking more nonfiction. Yeah, um, you know, because instead of having to reprint a new version of the book, you can simply update your PDF or whatever, and and you know, people can re-download if they you know want the updated version. Because uh, I cannot tell you how many different versions of textbooks I had to go through to find the one the professor wanted when I was in school. It used to drive me absolutely bananas. Well, wait till the version changes every three minutes. Oh, well, that might be a little much. 
I think one of the more interesting comments I heard at the con conference was something that uh, Rick Prellinger said uh, the first day, which is something I, I, I quite believe, which is that the, and, and, and Rick, this may not have been Rick's point, this may just be my point, but the, 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 the obsession with, with fixedness of versions uh, is something that, whenever, whenever we, we show this stuff that we do, people always say, well, what about the, you know, how are you gonna know what version people are talking about if the author is always contributing and always changing and all these comments? And basically, I'm, I, I think that the, the obsession with fixedness is, uh, is old school, basically. You know, we, you know, our lives don't have versions. You know, we, our lives just flow for as many years as we can, and we take snapshots along the way, literally. You know, and I think we'll take snapshots of, of works in process, but the main thing is that, the, that these things are, are gonna flow, and they're gonna keep changing, because that's how actually life is. It's only a, it's this blip of, you know, the last several hundred years when we had printing presses, and we could reify, you know, knowledge into these objects that we've done that. But we don't have to do that anymore. And we don't, have, and we can, and we can lose some of our, you know, concerns about um, ab about what happens when when you don't have a fixed object anymore. Quick remark: I forgot to mention, uh, we formed a uh, Google group called Rethinking the Book. I'm Bob Logan, version 69 years old. Anyone wants to join that group? Please see me at the cocktails. One of the things I wanted to say about books is kids. You know, kids will kids will read pretty much anything given it, given to them. But um, I mean, kids today they have libraries of their own. That's awesome. Not everybody and not everywhere. I'm going to libraries are just amazing. So I can see 20 years from now, you know, you'll go to the library. You're five years old. You can write your name. They give you my e-ink little book, and it's yours. And that would be groovy. You'll, always, you'll go in every week and you'll be like, I want to get the latest Harry Potter, you know, whatever. But, and I can see that happening, but I'm not sure. I can see that and I can see now, but I do not know how this becomes that because where, where, do, where do we find the money for those, those books? Do publishers arbitrage it out over, over all the sales? I, I don't know. I... This, this is the part, the, the libraries and the used books and all that. I, I am in certain ways more with Bob on access to books, um, which is one of the reasons why we put out some of our books under Creative Commons. You sell a bunch of them, and then that's good. Put them out under Creative Commons because it's more important to a certain extent to build up a readership. You know, and not everybody likes every book, and it's easier for you to find that out if you read two pages of a PDF. You are more like an editor or an agent at that point, you are just, you know, you're not going on cover alone, you're just going, oh, manuscript, manuscript, manuscript. Ah, something good. Ah, inquiet as ever. <laughs> um, I, this has been a rather fascinating discussion for me, particularly as somebody who stands with one foot in various pieces of the publishing industry as a very, very small scale author, editor, um, consumer, and fan, but I think one of the things that has been, that kind of um, really caused some thinky thoughts is um, what Mr. Stein had to say about um, the, the discovery of book clubs that do not need co-location, because fan communities have been doing that for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And um, also the, to the point about the 
um, the dialogue that can exist between an author and uh, his or her public. Um, there's organizations that are, are kind of at work with that um, and actively encouraging not only the, the reception of the work and the discussion of the work, but to remix and to mash up and to so on, uh, to, to reinterpret the work and understand the work on different levels and varying, there's, we can all probably point to authors who have varying levels of acceptance of that future um, but organizations like the Organization for Transformative Works um, that really have made it their mission to find an, uh, a, a, a level where there's um, some celebration of that comfort. And I wonder if the panel could speak to sort of that, that possible avenue of future where it's not just dialogue with the author, um, but some exchange with the consumer. Um. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't, I mean, for example, one of the projects I'm, I'm looking forward to doing is to taking some pieces that are, you know, high up on the sort of cult uh, uh, meter, you know, whether, whether, whether it's, you know, the original Star Trek or, or Dune, you know, and where, where each one of those works would have a, a moderator, and the moderator's job basically is to moderate a, a developing community of all the fans who not only can talk about the work, but they, but you know, fan, I, I mean, I believe in fan fiction. You know, I mean, I, I mean, the, 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 they should be able also to add a chapter. They should be, you know, all kinds of things should happen there. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I, I really see that what we're, what we're talking about is, is, a, is a future where the, it doesn't stop when the, when the, the author or the artist does something, that's when it starts. You know, I mean, and, 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 and the readers have a tremendous role to play. You know, and, and, and I think in some of these, you know, because just in some cases, you know, the author's dead, you know. But I mean, take, you know, take, take what just happened with the Twain, you know. Why, I mean, why, why shouldn't people, you know, I mean, I, I could imagine, you know, taking, you know, uh, Huckleberry Finn or, 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 or Tom Sawyer and putting it out in a world where, where people could start to really talk about it and to, you know, to write little sort of tangents you know, because that, they're, they're incredibly important cultural seeds. And that, to me, that's where they are. They're seeds. They're the, the starting point. Six of the pieces in the book are unfinished, and we actually have a contest running. Uh, went out to the 26 million people who get the border shortlist saying, finish one of these pieces, and we'll pick one that's the best. And, you know, so. Um, what if 26 million people write them? Who owns the chapter when it's done? Who owns the chapter that they write? Well, they do. But the original part of the chapter, he's, I think he's asking, you know, because it's partially the written. Twi the Twain, so, pro so the the Twain, Twain Project owns Twain's part. Right. So it would be a collaborative work at that point. Yes, a remix. Yes, a remix. An adaptation. Given the year it took to work out the Twain contract, I don't even want to try to deal oh, with that. I can't even <laughs> think about it. We'll just give it away, and then we won't have to worry. So um, <clears throat> I'd like to say it's been a very interesting discussion, but um, as a refugee from the newspaper business, a lot of what is being talked about sounds extremely reminiscent of the pain that that business is going through as they try to transition from a print-based model to something else. And they are doing exactly some of the things you're talking about. <coughs> you know, the, especially the older reporters are having a lot of trouble. They're having to write in small chunks for the web. They're having to learn how to do video interviews. They're having to learn how to recharacterize 
uh, what they see as their product. They're learning how to have conversations with the readers. And all that said, they're still going out of business. So my first question is, how do you see this as different from that, except you know, fiction versus? But the second part is, I want to address your comment about uh, sort of what sounded a little bit like the lack of necessity for recording history. I mean, um, we have a long history of those in power rewriting the story of the day, and I think that uh, archiving a final version is valuable uh, if you want to reflect. So I just want to see what you have to say about that. Actually, I would like to about the last thing you said. I, I mean, Wikipedia, to me, is an example of you know the, the the surface of Wikipedia article um, is like a is like a version, but what's interesting about Wikipedia is that the history is there. In other words, in fact, the Wikipedia article actually is something that started one day and then f is in continuous motion. And Wikipedia will actually be much more valuable when we find a way to foreground the the the, the history of the article so that you can understand how it twisted and turned as it flowed through time. And I, th I think that it, it's, it, anyway, I'll stop there. That's. On the newspaper point, um, you know, book publishers were traditionally jealous of the newspaper business for having advertising revenue. Um, but we don't have as big a drop because we don't have it to lose. And they did. Um, so that it's, in a way, it protects us from as precipitous a loss because they haven't just lost the print version, they've lost most of their advertising model. One of the things about, the, one of the reasons that books don't uh, compete or they don't model after uh, newspapers is that newspapers are ephemeral. And, you know, I read my daily newspaper and kind of enjoy a local newspaper in Western Massachusetts, and it takes me 10 or 15 minutes. And then I'll read the Scotsman, I'll read the New York Times, I'll read the LA Times, whatever. Um, but all those things sort of are infinitely, infinitely replaceable. But if I have a book, I'm doing a completely different, I'm making a very different choice. You know, I'm, you know, in my dreams, I am sitting on a hammock with a cool drink in hand, and I am spending a couple of hours reading. And that, that choice is very different from what's going on in the blogosphere right now. You know, newspapers are fighting for attention from your hundred best friends and family in a way that books are not as much because readers are still making the choice of the longer story to a certain extent. When, if readers lose the attention span, if readers lose the urge to um, follow serial fiction, then we're screwed, you know, that's it. But when I look at the, when I look at um, the fiction market specifically, I see serials are the most popular type of books. So I don't, I don't think that the object will disappear, you know, in the same way that the newspaper will. You could say that the news is the most popular type of serial too. <laughs> I mean, and also I just, I just want to reemphasize. But the, the news is not going away. The newspaper is going away. All right. Well, and and in in a sense, they're trying exactly the same things that you were just listing. They're trying to make it interactive. They're trying to start a conversation with their readers that persist. They're trying to create communities that will discuss certain topics. And it's not working, actually. Well, actually, I mean, I mean, it is working on some news, in some places, but they're also, but, they, but they're still tied to their, you know, their, their printing, their, their, their plants and everything else. I mean, the, anyway. 
Also, they've, they've lost advertising. That's where the money was. Yeah, that's where the money was. Yeah. I think we need to turn to Professor Thorburn for our last question of the evening. I'm sorry to be loud. I didn't intend to sort of be the final speaker, but I, I have a, I'd, I'd like to take part in this previous conversation quickly by uh, <clears throat> reinforcing what some people on the panel have said. The fact is, newspapers are not failing. They have more readers than ever, and they read, but, they're, but they can't make money on their readers. The readers are reading them online. More people, millions more people read the New York Times or the Washington Post than ever before. The people all over the world are reading the, the, the London Times, reading, uh, but the problem is there's no, they don't have a monetary scheme for it. It's not, news is not dead, but newspapers do seem to be endangered. And I think that the point that several of the panelists have made about, about uh, books being more resilient, I think, is exactly right. One of the many papers uh, offered in this uh, conference that I've been unable to have, make time to listen to because there were so many other exciting things was titled, wonderfully, I thought, The Resilience of Paper. And I don't know if the author of that uh, uh, paper is here, but I can imagine what that argument was, and I, in any case, love the title. It's very useful, I think, to be reminded of what we might call continuity principles. After the advent of the printing press in many cultures for more, for, for more than 100 years, in some cases for 200 or 250 years, a scribal culture existed alongside the print culture. Not only are books not, not going to disappear, what's going to happen, I think, is that certain kinds of functions that books used to play, that they played sort of inadequately compared to what a search engine allows you to do, do are, will absolutely migrate permanently to digital formats. But there are also certain kinds of pleasures and certain kinds of activities that the book as a physical object uh, is, remains uh, much more successful at satisfying than any digital format that has been yet so far invented. I don't mean it's impossible in the future that some real digital equivalent to something you can drop in the bathtub or read in the bathroom or carry to the ocean or carry in your back pocket won't be developed, but, but, but uh, 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 at least until now, uh, at least at, in the present moment, th that is not a real possibility. There are certain forms of reading, certain forms of literary experience. I, I don't mean literary in the narrow fictional sense, but certain forms of, uh, of, of the encounter between a reader and a printed text that seems to me very unlikely to go away. And, I th it's, and, and, and in that sense, it seems to me that the panel's being a little bit too pessimistic. Uh, as I've suggested, many of the Current functions of print culture are surely already migrated toward the web, will we'll, we'll end up on the web. But certain kinds of experiences, the reading of poetry, the reading of novels, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the experience of short story collect, of, of, read, of, read, of reading stories in magazines and in, and in physical book collections, seems to me, it seems to me those are very unlikely to disappear. Uh, and it, I, I ask everyone in this audience to, to consider just a very simple uh, uh, experience that almost all of us have probably had over the last couple of days. Which item is easier to find something in, the online version of this conference <laughs> or the printed version? When you go on to the website, you have to scroll down 70 pages to find out where you are. You're lost. You're disoriented. When you have the physical object, you can flip from page to page. You is, can is someone at MIT working on an Apple F for the real world? Because yeah. that would be great. I don't know. Well, we'll see. But what I'm suggesting, what I'm suggesting is that it, it, it is premature to sing the, el to sing the Gutenberg elegies. 
very premature. Uh, and there's, there's no reason not to, n n not to feel that uh, just as radio survived, uh, survived the advent of uh, television and existed and, and exists in some sense in, in an even more powerful way in our culture than it did before the advent of television, so the book will not only retain certain functions that it already has, but it will discover new functions and exist in new niches. It seems to me that's a much more likely scenario, at least for the next seven lifetimes of humans on Earth. Panel? I hope you're right, because I love my books. And I love my new Sony e-reader. <laughs> so I, I think I would love to have both for you know the rest of the time that I'm around for. Um, well, I mean, I did, you know, profoundly disagree. But you know, it, just from an historical perspective, I, I think that it's only since 50 years, maybe, that the broad, middle, educated middle class could afford to assemble libraries. Uh, you know, it was the advent of the paperback that actually made that possible. So that this, 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 this idea that books are central to the human experience is really a 50-year a span. And I actually, while I, while I completely agree that right now I don't want to switch my reading in general to any of the electronic devices out there, the reality is that sometime in the next 25 years, you're going to have a device that is better for reading on. Forget all the other things that having, a, having text be electronic can do, but it's going to be actually better for reading on than paper. I think that books are going to stay around, because I think humans are going to, because I think that books, books are going to become art objects. You know, they're going to become much more expensive. But when you want to just read something, you're going to do it on something electronic. But I think that the, you know, that, that argument is one that, you know, I, I hate to make that argument against your very eloquent statement, because basically, who knows what, how it's going to happen. But I think that the, the idea that we can't make machines, a new kind of machine, that's as good as a paper book for reading on, I, I don't think is correct. Well, I mean, you may, you may well be right, and I, I wasn't suggesting that most of what we think of as print culture won't migrate to the, to the to digital format. I think it will. But I think we're underestimating what an astonishing technology the book is. Not only how tough it is, how resilient it is, how incapable of damage it is, how impervious to changes of weather and so forth it is, how independent, how autonomous it is compared to all of our other formats, right? It doesn't need batteries. It doesn't need electricity. Uh, uh, one could even say that, that uh, some of the ways in which new technology, technologies have developed recently has expanded the form of the book because we can, we, we're listening to books for, the, for, for, for really essentially in, in, uh, on a scale that had never happened before before the advent of technologies. So hey, it David, seems I, to I, me, it seems to me that what we can say is that is that certain forms of print culture will certainly disappear, but there's no evidence I can see that the ease with which you can page through a manuscript, uh, to page through a book, has a, 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 a digital equivalent. But when you, you, know, when you think about books as a... here, right now, I, up until the point that it's printed, all of book production has gone digital, right up until it's printed on demand. We're in the era. David, I've never asked this question of anybody before, but suppose you had to make a choice. You can keep your library, 
your personal library, or you can keep your a, per, a computer. Which would you choose? I, no, you would have to ask him. If, it would have to be his yes, library but I, versus. But that's, it would have that's to be versus an e-reader, not a computer, because a computer is a multitasking no, machine. But, but also the, you know, think of also the possibility that as an industry, we're publishing 250,000, 300,000 new books a year. 40% of what's shipped is returned to us. Um, this is an incredible environmental disaster. Um, these are made, and it's a disastrous business model. So the idea that maybe Digital formats are a way that we find out which books should be put on paper and kept in your library. This is yet another part. I mean, there are many ways that these can coexist. The idea of the book as an abstract platonic ideal that you're, you know, we can all think is a wonderful thing is great until we print a particular book that somebody may not want and that we've spent a million dollars to acquire and we've shipped 400,000 copies of it and we've got 399,000 of them back then it's not as interesting an object uh, because it's filling our warehouse. So The five million copies of Dan Brown's lost yeah. symbol. Yeah. I knew you were going to bring Those that up. Hey. Those aren't going to come back. <laughs> no. Well, and of course, the interesting thing is that our return system uh, arose out of the previous depression uh, in an attempt to make book publishing work in a viable way during an economic hardship. And now we're looking at an economic hardship that is in some ways equivalent and asking these questions and it's it's to me, it's a, a very interesting parallel. Um, but I do think you know, this idea of the, the book as a romantic object is pervasive in a lot of readers. Um, nearly half of the people who answered my poll uh, about which e-reader which e should I buy said they wouldn't buy an e-reader. And it wasn't because of cost. It was because they wanted to read a book, not an electronic format which of a book. Well, whatever book they bought, but that, of course, is but the- But it's not whichever book we publish. Book that's pub. true, too. Um, <laughs> Your, yes, exactly, your book. Um, so I think what we're looking at is sort of a, a psychological issue um, between what we perceive as the format of the story that is being delivered to us. And it's interesting to me um, when uh, we're talking about formats that will evolve that will not be book-shaped because to me, he's, he was saying uh, that it was old-fashioned to think of them as just books, but to me it's actually really old-fashioned that we're talking about cooperative stories because, of course, books arose out of an oral tradition that was cooperative and that changed from bard to bard as they traveled from you know, household to household. And so in a way, I actually almost feel like we're getting back to the core of what story is as opposed to how we deliver the story. I think that's the, the perfect median transition moment upon which to end this conversation. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you to the panel. And we'll see you later.